right. Ready or not, here we go. I think the kiddos are ready. They're very loud. They are very loud. All right, well, we're going to jump right in where we picked up last week. Remember, we're going to kind of split that part into two. But we've been in this series, In His Image, and getting an understanding of who we are, what it means to be created in His image. What that means is that we're not just hands and feet and all that other stuff. It means that we are His representative. On this earth, we are created as an image bearer of God. And we went through the different examples of that. Obviously, Adam was created in the image of God. It's abundantly clear. But what that meant was is that he was to tend the garden and keep it and expand the garden. That was his job. Then, after he falls, we see God take a nation to represent him on the earth. And they didn't get it right. But then he sends himself, his own son, Jesus, to represent God on the earth. He said he is the express image of the Father. I only do what I see the Father do. I only say what I hear the Father say. That's what he said. And so what is he doing? He's being the express image of God on this earth. And then he turns the reins over to us. Saying that we are now his representative. Making disciples. That is our job. So he said here that we are supposed to be in the image of God. Making disciples. Doing exactly what Jesus did. There is nothing that Jesus did that we should not be doing. And so with that, as we began to transition a little bit, we've been on this topic of spiritual warfare. And as I told you guys, there are four questions that every believer must be able to answer from Scripture. Not just have an opinion about, but from Scripture. Number one is who is God? Who God is matters. Because it's not your opinion on who God is. As you've heard me say, if we did not have Scripture then the descriptions we use to to define God would be nothing more than opinion. But God left His his attributes, His personality, His will, all through the pages of Scripture. And that is where we find it. I was having this discussion with Jim this morning, but, but somebody had made a comment the other day that God is just unconditional love and He just loves everybody exactly how He made them. Well, how would you know that? Because they also reject the pages of Scripture. So how do you know that? It's nothing more than an opinion. There has to be something more substantial than just your opinion. I don't know if you know this, but sometimes opinions are wrong. They're like armpits. Everybody has them. Some of them stink. You know what I'm saying? Like, like that's what I'm getting at. It's like we have to have something greater than our feelings, greater than what we think as an opinion. One example of this that I'll give you is I was sitting in a high school many years ago and I was teaching a, a, a class in this school. It was before school started. Um, I was hooked up with Youth for Christ and I was working with these guys and we're talking about the idea of truth. Truth being absolute, not relative. Objective. A standard. And one of the girls piped up and said, you know, truth does change because if we believe this today but later because of scientific testing, we find out that actually that wasn't true, this is true, then you see truth change. It's like, no, no, no. Truth never changed. Our opinion was wrong. And she just stood there for much like, oh, I get that. Why do we think that? We just don't think it through. So we have to have something above ourselves. The second part of this is who I am in relationship to God. That matters. Because if God is here and I'm here, then who I am in relationship to Him matters. For God so loved the world that He sent His only Son that whoever believed in Him would not perish and have everlasting life. He has just defined our relationship. He created a way that we would not be destroyed but we would spend eternal life with Him. That matters. Because He went to great lengths to do that. Great lengths in our eyes. So who we are in relationship to Him 
matters. It's who He says we are, not who we think we are. You see, we have to go through the pages of Scripture. Is God sitting up there with the proverbial hammer waiting to drop it on you? Some believe yes. Some believe that if you missed church on a Sunday and you were killed in a car wreck, to hell with you. Literally. Is that right? How do we know? Because they are just as passionate about it as you would be. So we have to have a standard. The third part of this, and this is where we are, is who is my enemy? As we know, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but every principality and power, spiritual force in the heavenlies. Understanding that matters. Understanding the tactics of the enemy and how he moves. And we find that through Scripture. We find the way that he moves. He said, we are not ignorant of his devices. The methods of which he attacks. And the thing I've told you guys is that we are under attack. It's abundantly clear. There's a reason we have armor. There's a reason that we're supposed to do certain things. But we as a society, and I'm talking about our society, are in a disillusion of reality. We have been diluting things down to the point that they're unrecognizable to what they once were. And we don't even realize what's taking place until it's too late. It's the toad in the pot type of thing, if you know what I mean. And so when things get really hot, yeah, we get, we get very ambivalent. We want to we wanna stand up for truth and stand up for what's right. But all these little things that are distracting are pulling us away. And as I told you, it's something that everybody kind of knows but never really thinks about. When the enemy brings temptation, it's not simply to make you sin. It's to draw you away from God. If he can get you away from the church, if he can get you away from his word, if he can get you away from God, then the sin part will take care of itself. It's not just so that you'll fall and do things wrong and God will be upset. It's to keep you from producing fruit. We saw in Matthew 4, not Matthew 4, uh, Mark, Mark 4, Luke 8, where those parable of the soils, where there were four soils, one never gets saved because the enemy comes and takes the word from the heart lest they should believe and be saved. You've got two soils where the cares of this world, the seedfulness of riches, etc., etc., keeps them from producing fruit. And then you've got one soil where they produce a 30, 60, 100-fold return. Which one is it that you are? Hopefully it's that. But those other two in the middle are being attacked by the enemy and drawn away. And things that we'll get into at a later time. But understand this. Isaiah 59 verse 2. Your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden His face from you so that He will not hear. Why did He write that? Because it's what happens when you sin. God is separated from you in a proverbial sense. Here in their uh, uh, um, covenant, certainly, when they missed the mark, there was judgment that was going to come. When we miss the mark, we fall out of fellowship. And we see, as we've talked about, Jesus, the temptation, Matthew 4, was to draw Him away from God. The soils, to draw them away from God. Adam, Eve, to draw them away from God. It's always the same. The temptation and what we're going to read today with the nation of Israel was to draw them away from God for a reason. So we started down this last week. We're going to finish this part up today in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. It says, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. And you have per, uh, persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have le left your first love. 
Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent to do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, first and foremost, we talked about the apostles. They were false apostles. How did they test them? They tested them, found that they are not, and they are liars. How did they do that? What metric? Is it a written exam? Here, please fill this out. If you pass, you're an apostle. What was an apostle at that point in time? The main apostles were somebody who saw Jesus from his baptism on to his resurrection. That's clear in Acts chapter 1. But there were apostles, and apostles are essentially church planters, that were going around claiming apostolic authority. Why would they do that? Because it carried weight. Back at that time, when somebody came in and said, oh, Paul sent me to talk to you. How did you know? You wouldn't. If somebody claim, comes in today and says that they're a minister of the gospel and they're doing all this different stuff, what can we do? We can stalk them on Facebook for a while. See if we can find anything out about them. See where they stand. Right? They had tested them against the word. Because the things that they were saying did not line up scripturally and therefore they could not be apostles of God. They may be apostles, they weren't of God. And then it talks about going back to first love. We talked about that. But it says that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Jump down to verse 12. And to the angel of the church of Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas, my faithful martyr, uh, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. Because you have, uh, you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus, you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So this isn't good. Where Pergamos is was the throne of Satan. There were many false gods there, and as I told you guys last week, we're getting into this, understanding what is happening at this time. This is a specific church in modern-day Turkey, and this letter has to make sense to them. These are not metaphors. When it says where the throne of Satan is, this isn't a metaphor. The principalities and rulers of the dark places, this is talking about where the throne of Satan is. And then we talked about this Antipas and who the Nicolaitans were, Nicolaitans. They were victory over the people. That's what the word literally means. It was a doctrine of compromise. Because what was happening in Pergamos is that you had a culture that was very pagan, A, and secular, B. Pagan in the sense that they would sacrifice to all of these different gods, including their rulers, the Caesars. But then also secular in the sense that when you went to the theaters, it was very depraved. When you went to the auditorium for the athletic events they were always fought in the nude when you went to the bathhouses where you would think you're just going to get a bath that's not what was going on there you can use your imagination okay if you have questions about that see me afterwards and then they would go into the temple that's where the business of everything was taking place no different than the things that would happen at the gates of the temple where all the people would gather they would go in there but when you went in there you were required to take a pinch of incense and burn it over the flames and say that Caesar is Lord. Well, the Christians stopped doing all of this. People were getting saved and they realized we can't do this. We can't go to the theater. We can't watch this stuff. This is ungodly. We can't go to the games. 
because this is ungodly. We can't go to the bathhouses because of everything that's happening. They're entering into a temptation field. If you play with snakes, you will get bit. It's, it's one of those things. And they certainly can't go to the temple because there is one God. And the doctrine of the Nicolaitans was like, listen, guys, God understands where we are. Just live your life. Pinch the incense. It's no big deal. Go to the theater and enjoy. It's just entertainment. Go to the athletic events. It's just entertainment. It's okay. God understands. It was a doctrine of compromise. Did Jesus hate it? Yeah, he made that pretty clear. Of which things I hate. Says it multiple times. Now Antipas, as I talked about, his name means against all. Literally means against all. So I'm sure he was fun to be around. But they believe he's probably the pastor of the church at that time. Certainly a leader. He gets arrested for casting out demons. You find this from other writings. There's a lot of writings out there, guys, that will give you more information of what was going on. But these ancient writings that were telling about Antipas, because Scripture never mentions him again. So we don't have any idea from the pages of Scripture. But early church fathers certainly wrote about him and what took place. He was out there making disciples, healing the sick, and casting out demons. What does that sound like? Sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? That's exactly what he was doing. And because of this, in a very pagan world, as you cast demons out of people, including priests, the priests did not like it because their power came from the demonic. So it created this problem, and they had him arrested. And they stood in court, and they demanded him to reject his faith, to pick up theirs, and to no longer preach in the name of Jesus. Does that sound familiar? Of course, he refused. And I told you guys, they had this bronze bull. It was very high. And they had a door on the side of it. And what they would do as sacrifice and also as punishment is that they would open that door and put the individual inside. And they would light a fire all the way around it. And of course, being bronze, it will conduct heat. And it heats up and they're literally cooked alive. And in the throat, in the mouth of that, uh, that bull, as the screams were coming forth, there were horned instruments. As the air would go through it, it would make the bull sound like it was moaning. And that was their sign that the sacrifice had been accepted. It's weird, is it not? Aren't you glad we don't live in times such as those? It's a little different. This stuff still happens, just so you're aware. So it was very, very bad. This is how Antipas was killed. The church persecution isn't even the bad part. Because that's not what Jesus is addressing. He's addressing the compromise. He's not telling them, guys, just hide, go underground, don't worry about them, just get away from them, all that. That's not what he says. He's dealing with those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans and the doctrine of Balaam. You see, the church being attacked from the outside will thrive. You and I may cease to exist on this earth, but the church will thrive. It always has, under times of persecution, the church rises up. In foreign lands where there is persecution going on, the gospel spreads at a rate unlike anywhere else. We were talking about this this morning, as a matter of fact, about how easy it is to just pick a church. You don't like the music at this one? Go down the street and find one that's got better music. Don't do that, okay? I'm sorry. It's all I got. If you don't like the way that God preaches, go somewhere else. If you don't like the brand of coffee that they serve, you can go anywhere you want. But that is not true in most of the world. And a friend of mine that runs a ministry in Salt Lake uh, City, Utah, dealing with Mormons, he's in the heart of the Mormon uh, uh, church there, is where he is at. He came from North Carolina. You know what you can do in North Carolina? You can throw a rock and hit a Baptist church. 
right? I don't care. Pick a direction, blindfold them, spin them around. You will find one. And if you don't like Baptist Church A, go to Baptist Church B. You don't like B, go to C. Pick anyone you want, right? Have it your way, baby. Whatever you want to do. But he moves to Utah. Guess what? There ain't no churches. Not Christian churches. There's very limited ones. He's going to a Calvinistic church right now. Because it's the best one he could find. He's not a Calvinist. He learned real quick. He's like, man, it's amazing. Like how for granted we take. How spoiled we are. They don't have options. Jesus isn't addressing the fact that they're being persecuted. He's addressing the compromise, the spiritual infection that has got into the church that they're not dealing with. The spiritual sickness will weaken the church from the inside out. And it won't be until after it's almost too late before you recognize it. It happens in our hearts. It happens individually. They creep in unannounced. So the doctrine of Balaam. Let's talk about that. Let's go and look at the scriptures and see what it says. It's introduced, uh, essentially, introducing compromise to God's people. And it's what brings God's people down. Now, we're dealing with the nation of Israel. Remember, we talked about how the enemy was attempting to tempt Jesus to draw him away. The four soils, we see he tempts people to draw them away. We see with the nation of Israel, we see with Adam and Eve. But false prophets, what do they do? They draw people away. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. It says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. Now, when it says, beware of false prophets, what is that implying? They're out there. You need to be aware of it, because they're coming. Where do they come? Do they come? With horns and a pitchfork? I'd like to introduce you about today about the church of Satan and how you should really think about joining. Is that how they come? No, of course not. There's many different false teachings out there, but these false prophets come in sheep's clothing, which means they look like the rest of us, but inwardly, they're ravenous wolves. Now let me give you a quick definition. A false prophet is not the same as one who prophesies falsely. I want to make sure you understand the difference. One who prophesies falsely is believed that they, maybe they heard from the Lord with a sincere heart, but just missed it. That can happen. But here it's abundantly clear that these people know that they were not sent by God. They know that they are not hearing from God. There's a big difference. And they have an agenda. Inwardly, they are ravenous wolves. What do wolves do to sheep? Buffet. Well, they eat them. You will know them by their fruits. That means you're testing them. You're examining what they are doing and what is the fruit of their ministry. So this is crucial as we go forward. Let's look at Revelation 2, verse 12 again. To the angel of the church of Pergamos write, These things says he who has a sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell where Satan's throne is. You hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. Because you have put those who hold, or you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. 
And thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. Now let's talk about Balaam. He is saying that inside of this church there are those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. Well, then it goes in to tell us what Balaam did. He taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel. In what way did he do that? Well, they were to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Now, let's define these. Okay? Now, you may be sitting here thinking, okay, well, I understand that, but we're under a New Testament grace. Well, in Acts chapter 15, what did he say? Remember, the argument was that they needed to adopt the Mosaic law, the covenant, that become circumcised, Sabbath-keeping, all that other stuff. And what do they say? No, it seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us that you don't eat meat sacrificed to idols and you don't commit sexual immorality. Is this not the same thing that it just said? Absolutely it is. It's the exact same thing. So apparently, Jesus, God, does not like any of this stuff. So, meat sacrificed to idol were things that were used in the worship of the idol. Okay? So these were things that were introduced there. Sexual immorality. Here's a very easy definition. Okay? God has laid out what sexual immorality is. Any sexual activity that is not between a husband and a wife. That's it. You may want to say man and woman, but that's not what it says. It says husband and wife. Any sexual activity that is outside of a husband and a wife is sexual immorality. And these are the things that Jesus hates. But it still doesn't define exactly what it was. So, we're going to go and look at the scriptures here somewhat quickly. I'm not going to rush through this. In Micah chapter 6 verse 5 it says, Oh my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab counseled, and what Balaam the son of Beor answered him from Acacia Grove to Gilgal, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. So he brings up their name in Micah. Second Peter chapter 2 verse 15. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness but he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. Now this is interesting. We get another piece of information here. We can all agree that Balaam probably wasn't a good guy. Okay? I think that we can, uh, we can get pretty clear here. But he forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam. Then it says what? Who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Okay? That word wages mattered. We'll come back to that. Jude 11. Woe to them. For they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, and perish in the rebellion of Korah. Now there's a lot of debate about Balaam, whether he was truly a prophet of God, or if he was not a prophet of God. There's a lot of debate there. And uh, I, I think the answer is yes. Okay? So I'm going to present the information, but I want you to understand this, that it is debated. But what we can certainly say is that he was a prophet for hire. Because it talks about here that he loved the wages of unrighteousness and he has run greedily in the era of Balaam for profit. Profit's not a bad word. It's the greedy part. So we're going to get into this. A man named Philo said this about Balaam. He was a man renowned above all men for his skill as a diviner and a prophet who foretold to the various nations important events abundance and rain of droughts and famines inundations and pestilence his skill as a diviner these are terms that are used about somebody who is essentially a witch okay just keep that in mind one thing you need to understand that if Balaam is a prophet of God he was not an Israelite okay so 
Let's go to Numbers chapter 22. Let's get into this. The children of Israel moved and camped in the plains of Moab on the side of the Jordan across from Jericho. Now Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. So what were they doing? They're moving across. And anybody that got in the way, the Lord took them out. Okay? And Moab was exceedingly afraid of the people because there were many. And Moab was sick with dread because of the children of Israel. Word has spread. They're afraid of what's going to happen to them. So Moab said to the elders of Midian, Now this company will lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. And Balak, the son of Zippor, was king of the Moabites at that time. So now we know who Balak was. Then he sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor of Pethor, which, he, uh, which is near the river in the land of the sons of his people, to call him, saying, Look, a people has come from Egypt. See, they cover the face of the earth and are setting next to me. Therefore, please come at once. Curse this people for me, for they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. Now, let me stop here for a moment. It is believed, and guys like Philo, and these are ancient writers, okay, were believed that it wasn't that Balaam had the ability to curse somebody or bless somebody, but his role in relationship with God was unique, and he was a prophet for hire and a diviner, that he would be able to see God's judgment about to come on somebody or God's favor and would stand up and be like, oh, thus saith the Lord, they will be cursed. And then, of course, God's curse fall. He was taking credit that it would be no different to me than I said thus saith the Lord you will eat lunch today right I mean it's the same kind of kind of thing and so that is what is believed here again we read this we're unsure where he is with God but God definitely interacts with him but just understand these are what was believed so let's go to verse 7 so the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed and the diviners fee in their hand and they came to Balaam and spoke to him the words of Balak. So why did they bring the diviner's fee? Do you ever remember about Samuel taking a fee? Isaiah? Any of the other prophets? We could list them all out. I don't ever recall reading about that. If I'm wrong, you can show me. He said to them, Lodge here tonight, and I will bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam. Then God came to Balaam and said, who are these men with you? So Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent to me, saying, Look, a people has come out of Egypt, and they cover the face of the earth. Come now, curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to overpower them and drive them out. So, did God come to Balaam? Yes, it says that. Who are these guys with you? He's calling them out. And he tells them exactly what they were to do. And then God said to Balaam, You shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people for they are blessed. So Balaam rose in the morning, said to the princes of Balak, go back to your land, for the Lord has refused to give me permission to go with you. And the princes of Moab rose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. Then Balak again sent princes, more numerous and more honorable than they, so he stepped it up. And they came to Balaam and said to him, thus says Balak, the son of Zippor, please let nothing hinder you from coming to me, for I will certainly honor you greatly, and I will do whatever you say to me. Therefore, please come, curse this people for me. And Balaam answered and said to the servant of uh, Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or more. Now therefore, please, you also stay here tonight, that I may know uh, what more the Lord will say to me. Now, some of it will believe that this is his way of dropping hints 
of what will get him to go. If Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, like he's dropping hints, maybe, I don't know. And God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men come to call you, rise and go with them. But only the word which I speak to you, that you shall do. So Balaam rose in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the princes of Moab. Now it does say God there. Okay? But here's where it gets confusing. Verse 22. Then God's anger was aroused because he went. What do you do with that? It's confusing. Now it is very possible the word God there is Elohim, which just simply means a, a spiritual being. It's Elo. We've always said it's God, but it really doesn't because it's translated differently. So it's possible that is a what we would call a familiar spirit. It's possible. We don't know for sure. Regardless, the story goes on. God's anger was aroused because he went and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. And he was riding on his donkey and his two servants were with him. Now the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the way and went into the field. So Balaam struck the donkey to turn her back onto the road. So apparently this donkey could see into the spiritual world and sees the angel of the Lord, which we believe it was Christ himself for various reasons. And he didn't like what he saw, so he turned off. But Balaam could not see him. Okay? Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on this side and a wall on that side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed herself against the wall and crushed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. Then the angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right hand or to the left. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. So Balaam's anger was aroused and he struck the donkey with the staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, Because you have abused me, I wish there were a sword in my hand, for now I would kill you. And the donkey said, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden ever since I became yours to this day? Was I ever deposed to do this to you? And he said, No. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. And he bowed his head and fell flat on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to stand against you, because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside from me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely I would also have killed you by now and let her live. So now for a fact, we know that he is dealing with the angel of the Lord. Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know you stood in the way against me. Thou therefore, if it displeases you, I will turn back. And the angel said to Balaam, go with the men, but only the word that I speak to you, that you shall speak. So Balaam went with the princes of Balaam. Now when Balak heard that Balaam was coming, he went out to meet him at the city of Moab, which is on the border of Arnon, the boundary of the territory. Then Balak said to Balaam, Did I not earnestly send to you, calling for you? Why did you not come to me? Am I not able to honor you? And Balaam said to Balak, Look, I have come to you. Now, have I any power at all to say anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that I must speak. So Balaam went to Balak, and they came to uh, Kirjath Huzah. Then Balak offered oxen and sheep, and he sent some to Balaam, to the princes who were with him. So they're offering, making an offering. Now, one of the things that was done in pagan rituals is that they would read the entrails. 
They would make multiple sacrifices, and these false prophets would read the entrails of the animal. They were diviners. Okay? Verse 41. So it was the next day that Balak took Balaam and brought him up to the high places of Baal, that from there he might observe the extent of the people. Now understand the high places of Baal. High places is where Baal worship was going on. When it talks about the high places, when they were to go into a land, what were they supposed to do? Destroy the high places. That doesn't mean knock down the hill so you can see farther. These were these things that were built and elevated for false sacrifice. So where did Balaam go? The high place where the sacrifice and worship of Baal was taking place. Chapter 23. Balaam said to Balak, Build seven altars for me here, and prepare for me here seven bulls and seven rams. And Balak did just as Balaam had spoken. And Balak and Balaam offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Then Balaam said to Balak, Stand by your burnt offering, and I will go. Perhaps the Lord will come to meet me, and whatever he shows me, I will tell you. So he went to a desolate height, and God met Balaam, and he said to him, I have prepared the seven altars, and I have offered on each altar a bull and a ram. So the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, Return to Balak, and thus you shall speak. So he returned to him, and there he was standing, standing by his burnt offering, he and all the princes of Moab. So there's a crowd there. And he took up his oracle and said, Balak, the king of Moab, has brought me from Aram, from the mountains of the east. Come, curse Jacob for me, and come, denounce Israel. How shall I curse whom God has not cursed? How shall I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? From the top of the rocks I see him, and from the hills I behold him. There, a people dwelling alone, not reckoning itself among the nation. Who can count the dust of Jacob, or number one-fourth of Israel? Let me die the death of the righteous, and let my end be like this. Now, let's stop for a moment. What was the only way that the nation of Israel could be cursed? Breaking the covenant. That was the only way. God said, do you accept my terms? If you follow me and do what I command, you will be blessed. And if you don't, you will be cursed. Okay? Who brings on that curse? God does. He says, who shall I curse? How can I curse whom God has not cursed? He has no power. These people are walking in the favor of God right now. Why? Because it says they are not, in verse 9, they are not reckoning itself among the nations. That word reckoning means coming in and acting like them. They are still separated like they were called to. Verse 11. Then Balak said to Balaam, What have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies, and look, you have blessed them bountifully. So he answered and said, Must I not take heed to speak what the Lord has put in my mouth? Verse 13. Balak said, And please come with me to another place from which you must see. You may see them. You shall see only the outer part of them, and shall not see them all. Curse them for me, for me from there. So he brought him to the field of Zelphim, at the top of Pisgah, and built seven altars and offered a bull and ram on each altar. It's a bad day to be a bull or a ram. And he said to Balak, Stand here by your burnt offering while I meet the Lord over there. Then the Lord met Balaam and put a word in his mouth, and said, Go, to Bala uh, go back to Balak, and thus you shall speak. So he came to him, and there he was, standing by his burnt offering. And the princes of Moab were with him. And Balak said to him, what has the Lord spoken? And he took up his oracle and said, Rise up, Balak, and hear. Listen to me, son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Behold, I have received a command to bless. He has blessed, and I cannot reverse it. 
He has not observed iniquity in Jacob, nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. The Lord his God is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt. He has strength like a wild ox, for there is no sorcery against Jacob, nor any divination against Israel. It now must be said of Jacob and of Israel, Oh, what God has done. Look, a people rises like a lioness and lifts itself up like a lion. It shall not lie down, down until it devours the prey and drinks the blood of the slain. What did, it, what did God look for? Iniquity. Wickedness. What did He not find? Iniquity and wickedness. They are blessed. They're being obedient to the covenant. Verse 25, Balak said to Balaam, neither curse them at all, nor bless them at all. So Balaam answered and said to Balak, did I not tell you, saying, all that the Lord speaks, that I must do. That's number two. Let's try it a third time. It's a charm, right? Then Balak said to Balaam, please come. I will take you to another place. Perhaps it will please God that you may curse them for me from there. So Balak, Balak took Balaam to the top of Peor, the overlooks the wasteland. And Balaam said to Balak, Build for me here seven altars, and prepare for me here seven bulls and seven rams. And Balak did as Balaam said, and offered a bull and ram on every altar. Chapter 24. Now when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go as other times, to seek to use sorcery. Now that's a new piece of information, isn't it? He's looking for a way to curse these people using sorcery. However, he cannot because they are blessed by God. You guys see that? This is why many believe he was a witch. Could he hear from the Lord? Apparently so. How that works? Don't ask me. He set his face towards the wilderness, and Balaam raised his eyes and saw Israel encamped according to the tribes, and the Spirit of God came upon him. And he took up his oracle and said, The utterance of Balaam, the son of Eor, the utterance of the man whose eyes are open, the utterance of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty, who falls down with eyes wide open. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your dwellings, O Israel, like valleys that stretch out, like gardens by the riverside, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters. He shall pour water from his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters. His king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt. He has strength like a wild ox. He shall consume the nation, his enemies. He shall break their bones and pierce them with his arrows. He bows down. He lies down as a lion, and as a lion... Who shall rouse him? Blessed is he who blesses you, and cursed is he who curses you. Now what is that from? That's from the covenant. A promise to Abraham way back when. Now, does this sound like anybody you would want to tangle with? No, because there is nothing you can do against them as long as God's hand is upon them. Verse 10, that Balak's anger was aroused against Balaam, and he struck his hands together. And Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies. And look, you have bountifully blessed them these three times. Now therefore, flee to your place. I said I would greatly honor you, but in fact, the Lord has kept you back from honor. So Balaam said to Balak, did I not also speak to your messengers whom you sent to me, saying, if Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the word of the Lord to do good or bad of my own will. But the Lord says that I must speak. And now indeed, I am going to my people. Come, I will advise you what this people will do to your people 
in the latter days. Here's the next prophecy. So he took up his oracle and said, The utterance of Balaam, the son of Beor, the utterance of the man whose eyes were opened, the utterance of him who hears the words of God and has the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, who falls down with eyes wide open. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of Tumult. And Edom shall be a possession. Uh, Seir also, his enemy, shall be a possession while Israel does valiantly. Out of Jacob, one shall have dominion and destroy the remains of the city. Then he looked on Amalek and he took up an oracle and said, Amalek was first among the nations, but shall be last until he perishes. Then he looked on the Kenites and he took up his oracle and said, Firm is your dwelling place and your nest is set in the rock. Nevertheless, Cain shall be burned. How long shall, uh, until Asher carries you away captive? Then he took up his oracle and said, Alas, who shall live when God does this? But ships shall come from the coast of Cyprus, and they shall afflict Asher and afflict Eber. And so shall Amalek until he perishes. So Balaam rose and departed and returned to his place. Balak also went his way. Now, not a lot of information was given here as far as what Balaam ultimately did wrong. But look at chapter 25, verse 1. Now Israel remained in Acacia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to send sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was roused against Israel. Now, how did they know to send out the women? Because likely, as the nation of Israel was moving, the women and children would have stayed back. Likely. These men would have been out on battle and not with their wives and not with their children. And it says they begin to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. These are not just average women. This is actually the temple prostitutes. And they would send them out to tempt them. Well, what happens when they worship God and they commit harlotry with these women? God's hand is now removed. Here comes the curse. In Numbers chapter 31, verse 15, it says, And Moses said to them, Have you kept all the women alive? Look, these women caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the incident of Peor, and there was a plague among the congregation. What Balaam did was not simply put a curse on them. He taught Balaam how to bring Israel down. The men of Israel probably thought, this is no big deal. We'll just add this, you know, it's just part of our lives. It's not, we'll just sacrifice to Baal. Keeps these women happy, keeps them around. What did it do? It brought a curse upon them. What was going on in Pergamon? The same thing. It was this doctrine of compromise. It was a spiritual affection that had crept into the church. It had caused these people to turn their hearts away from the Lord. Balaam is never spoken of in a favorable sense. Whether he was truly a prophet of God, whether he was a witch, it's kind of irrelevant. But what he did is he taught people how to bring down God's people. What is the enemy trying to do? Bring down God's people. How does he do it? Through people. We'll continue on this next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true. 
We thank you that we can count on every promise and everything that you have said. And so, Lord, as we, we go about our week, we thank you that if we just dwell on this, we have our antennas up to what the enemy is trying to do, to perhaps the temptations around us, perhaps the things that are going on, trying to lead us astray. Lord, just correct our hearts. Convict us of where we've missed it as we draw near to you. Lord, I just pray that each and every day is an opportunity that we live to glorify you, that every word we speak and every action we take brings glory to your name, that those around us will know the presence and power of God as we are your imagers on this earth, representing you in every part of our lives. It's in your mighty name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.